Hey everyone, Trace here. Welcome back to Seeker Plus. Today, we're going to talk about holograms. What exactly is a hologram and what isn't? You'll know by the end of this. Who invented holograms and when? And what are they used for? Why are they on our money? Why are they on credit cards? And what can holograms teach us about the nature of our universe? And a lot of other stuff. You're going to learn a lot over the next 30 minutes or so. We're going to dig into the optics, physics, manufacturing, and understanding of holograms. It's going to be super illuminating. So let's kick into it. Holograms are everywhere. They're in movies. They're in television. You see them all the time. Star Wars has the Death Star plans and the help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. And on Star Trek, there's the holodeck. We've got Marvel movies, and they are everywhere in like every Marvel movie. Even CSI has holograms in it. But holograms do seem to be, if you watch pop culture, the future of visual information display. But they're actually also the past of that. Holograms have been around way longer than you might think. So before we get too far into this, holograms, super visual, really stunning looking. This show, not so much that. That's totally fine. Use your imagination because all the holograms you've probably seen were computer animated anyway. Also, they don't look that great you know, when you're watching a two-dimensional YouTube video. So, imagination circuits on. Etymology time, baby. Hologram comes from the word holography. It's two Greek words, holo meaning whole or full, H-O-L-O, and then graphy or grama meaning writing or document. Uh, you know, there are different translations. But essentially, it's the whole picture, the full view, the full document. The term hologram was coined by Dennis Gabor, a Hungarian physicist. Remember that name because we're going to come back to it in a minute. Gabor coined the term in 1947, but the hologram was sort of already around. He didn't create the first hologram. For that, you have to go back to 1886 and Gabriel Lippmann, a French physicist who really, really wanted to take color photographs. At the time, that wasn't a real big thing, so he had to figure out how to do it, and to do it, he used holography, holograms, but not quite like you think because he used regular light and he figured out the different wavelengths could be trapped in an emulsion. It's complicated. Let's break it down. They were holograms, but not the way that you think. When you think of a hologram now, you probably think of that thing on your credit card or on your money, where you like kind of push it back and forth, and you see the, the eagle, and it looks like it's moving in there, right? Uh, but this is different. This is, if you move it back and forth, you see the different colors in the picture. He called it the Lippmann process. And basically, he used the interference pattern of light to capture different wavelengths of information into a single photographic plate. And we're going to break that down in just a second. The pictures were color, sort of. It's complicated. Lippmann realized that color involves lots of wavelengths. So he used an emulsion that was sensitive to all the different visible colors and then painted that onto reflective mercury. Photography, by the way, has used linen, paper, glass, metal, all sorts of things to capture images. The thing is, the mercury reflected the light back through the emulsion. So it interfered with the light coming in. Think of two ripples on a pond. When they meet and they have a little point, that's called a standing wave. And that was inside of the emulsion, so it could trap it in there at different depths for different wavelengths or colors. Holograms, you have to move to see the whole picture, and it's the same with the Slipman process. All the colors were there, as natural as the day that they were made, with no dyes, no saturations, no chemical processes, but it took a long time, and you would have to move them around to see the full color image. But it was the first holographic picture. 
He actually captured a lot of these and published a paper on it in 1894, which won him, Gabriel Lippmann, the Nobel Prize. Dennis Gabor, in the 1940s, looked at the Lippmann process and thought, hmm, the problem here is that the light from the sun is just too scattered. And that was how Lippmann had to make his photos, using sunlight. So think of light kind of like sound. If you're in a room, say a concert, and the artist comes out on stage, everybody just starts shouting in every direction. It's, you know, some people are loud, some people are quiet, some people have high-pitched voices, some people have low-pitched voices. That is not unlike light coming out of a light bulb or the sun or a flashlight or whatever. It's just a big mess. But if you can be more precise with it, like a laser, you get a whole different thing, right? A laser would be more like a soloist or a choir, singing together, perfect, exact. So Dennis Gabor took it a step further and went from sunlight to laser light. It wasn't just capturing color versus not color, but also capturing more of the image using the interference pattern. He did this by using something called a collinear background. Essentially, it's a, kind of like an accordion that's been expanded a little bit. And that collinear background reflected the waves, causing the light to interfere. The interference pattern, again, is like the ripples in a pond. When they touch, you get that standing wave where they're meeting. And that standing wave can be captured inside of a photographic plate. So to do this, you need a laser, standard, a set of mirrors to reflect the laser toward the photographic plate, an object to image, say, a hand or a tiny eagle. Then you shoot the lasers at the object. The object reflects that light, and it bounces toward the photographic plate. However, you split the laser from the source and shoot that right at the photographic plate to start. Once they meet inside that photograph, they create the standing wave. And if you capture it just right, you get the bounces off of the little eagle or off of my hand, and you get the laser that started the whole process. The idea being you created more than just one light pointing one direction. Because lasers are so perfect and so in sync, the difference in all those little angles, all the little bounces of light off of the object you're imaging are caught inside of that plate. And when you turn the plate, you see the differences as you put that collinear border back in between you and the photograph. Because by itself, the photograph contains too much information to understand if you just looked at it. So you have to put something in between you, but it does work, and then you see all the different sides of the image. Dennis Gabor was right. He figured out how to do this process, and he patented it in 1956, making the hologram a thing. Really cool idea. I think holograms are super intriguing because they're not unlike real life. You know that things have depth and are 3D because light reflects off things, bounces, and is perceived by your eyes from all sorts of different angles. When light finally gets to you, you're seeing all sorts of different things. Imagine if you couldn't move and you had to look at a statue. You couldn't see the other side, you couldn't see the back, you couldn't see anything, just the front. You're soaking in the light bouncing off of that statue, right? Doesn't seem very fun, but that's photography. Holography is being able to kind of peek around the edges. And that's what we do as humans all the time when we perceive the world. So that's why they're so intriguing. When you see one, you get so excited about it. The thing is, we're still just talking about like still images and regular flat holograms. 
could someday we make an actual 3D hologram? Could we make a moving image hologram? Holograms may be flat, but they contain multitudes. Just like me. I had to. That's a bad joke. Anyway. Without rehashing the last episode, printed holograms are light data captured in a flat emulsion that gives the sensation that there is a three-dimensional object trapped in there. It's a trick, but it's a clever trick, and one invention made it possible for them to be everywhere. Most of us are familiar with holograms on our money, potentially, on credit cards, maybe, CD cases, if you're of a certain age, video game boxes. They're usually used to authenticate or prove that something is the real one, right? The original. And that's because holograms are difficult to reproduce. You can't just put them on a copier and get a hologram on the other side, right? They used to be actually difficult to produce as well. In fact, they were difficult to make into the 1970s. According to Sean Johnston's book, Holograms, A Cultural History, they still had problems capturing these holograms. They couldn't easily capture them without laser access, and that was tough to get. And They had problems processing and fixing the hologram into the photographic plate. And even still, the subject matter that they were trying to capture was really boring, and people didn't really care about holograms, even though they were super cool, because what they were capturing was stuff that had to be stationary and small, so things like chess pieces and toy trains. And then a home inventor named Mike Foster found a way to emboss holograms onto nickel shims. It's essentially a flat sheet made of nickel. He found the shims could have an embossed hologram on them, and then you could stamp that into plastic, similar to making a vinyl record. Think of the stamp as having little valleys in it that the light bounces out of. And as you move the hologram, the light is bouncing off different bits, so you're seeing different images. That opened the floodgates for cheap, reproducible holograms that could be used for all sorts of things, on foils, wrapping papers, and games, and clothing, and vinyl records. Collectively, these are called surface relief holograms. They're very common these days. They have low image quality, and essentially they're stamped into PET or PVC plastics. Longtime listeners might remember our plastics episode from a while back. PET is polyester, PVC is polyvinyl chloride, and how they're created is similar to, say, a vinyl record. You take the embossing system, the nickel shim with all of the little ridges of the hologram on it, and you stamp that onto a piece of plastic. Then you cool the plastic and fix it. Good to go. You could actually burn them into plastic as well with a laser, but that's slightly more expensive. And this new invention made holograms the stars of the show. They could be everywhere, made cheaply, and be used for all sorts of things. Again, most people experience them on money and credit cards for authentication because you can't scan them. Once you have this hologram in something like a credit card, you can't just pull all that information back out. Usually because a scanner just has a single source, right? It's just taking a picture of something. You'd need to scan the entirety of that hologram. You'd need to move around to see the whole image, and the scanner's not going to do that. But you can also use these holograms for scientific purposes. For example, you can see changes in a system over time. If I took a hologram of your face when you're a kid versus a hologram of you when you're a teenager, you've changed, and I can see all the little pieces. From a scientific perspective, I can take a hologram of a rock face and see how erosion is happening, or engine part wear, and see what parts of my engine are the weakest. You can store more information in less space, and Mike Foster's invention made that possible for all sorts of different industries. And in fact, Holograms are really just exact copies of what's happening in real life. The interesting thing is it stretches so far that if you take a hologram 
of a magnifying glass magnifying something, you can move and see the magnifying glass work and then not work. Come into focus and come out of focus. Look it up online. Super interesting. The reason it works, by the way, is just it's bent light. So the light bounces through the magnifying glass and is trapped into the photographic plate, but only at certain angles. Really cool. In 1988, in Australia, they started adding holograms to money for the first time. US $100 bills now have holograms in them too. There's a stripe next to Franklin's face, and it actually changes from 100 to the Liberty Bell. So if you are a baller and you have a Franklin in your pocket, go ahead and pull it out, see if you can see that. But that's not all. Holograms are also used in concerts, like that time Tupac showed up at Coachella, right? Except that he didn't show up at Coachella, and that is not actually a hologram. But holograms, as we've been talking about them, are physical things, right? They're moving things, you're bending light, there's optics and lasers involved and capturing them into photographic plates and standing waves and interference patterns and all of that. But what about life-size, interactive, real-looking holograms that you see in movies? Where's my droid with the hologram camera on the front, right? We sort of have stuff like that now. I mentioned the Tupac hologram. I'm going to come back to it. Don't worry. But that system is not actually holographic. It's just a projector. The reason it's not a hologram is because it's not capturing lots of information. Your brain just thinks it is. It's a visual trick. The Turkish Prime Minister Erdogan used this same system to look 10 feet tall on stage. It's actually pretty impressive. India's Narendra Modi has done it too, and no comment on the politics of those, but those two really did want to look like giant, larger-than-life figures. I'm not actually surprised by that. And even the news media has dabbled in these holograms. I'm using finger quotes for those listening at home. And these were built the same way as the Tupac hologram in 2012 at Coachella. The first hologram in this way was done in 1862. It was called Pepper's Ghost. To make it, a well-lit actor was placed under a stage, and they faced a mirror. The mirror reflected their image onto another reflecting surface on the stage, and it looked kind of ghostly. It tricked the audience into thinking that there was a hologram on the stage, but in reality, it was their brain filling in the gaps. This is done a lot these days. You can see it at Disney's Haunted Mansion, the video game Time Traveler by Sega, the arcade game. Maybe you saw that. There are actually a bunch of arcade games that use holograms to make you think that you're flying through space or whatever, but they're really just cleverly placed reflections. They take advantage of the fact that your brain doesn't necessarily know what's going on, so it just assumes that there's a person standing there. Tupac's hologram did exactly that, and it was very similar to what was done in 1862. They projected a reflection onto a piece of glass that reflected onto a screen made of mylar, so it looked like Tupac was standing on the stage next to Snoop, but in reality, it was just a reflection. Do you remember Marvel's Winter Soldier? This technology can be used in a variety of different ways. The SHIELD World Security Council meetings showed reflected people. They were just on tubes of plastic. If you go to amusement parks, sometimes you see projections onto water, smoke screens, all sorts of different things. This is all the same technology. It's the same as the Tupac hologram, but none of them are actually holograms. They're more like 3D telepresence. Companies are using this now to make conference calls a little more bearable, but it's still not the same as a hologram, because if you try and go around it, you'll notice they're still two-dimensional. We've had these kind of fake holograms forever. And unfortunately, no one has yet figured out how to make a true moving picture three-dimensional hologram, but people are on it. 
Researchers at the University of Arizona are using photorefractive polymers. That allows you to rewrite a hologram live, like on a plate in front of you. The plate currently is only 30 centimeters square or about a foot square. It's still flat. It is floating in the air if you, you know, mount it, but it's not actually floating in front of you. It's just inside of a screen. If we want something that floats in front of you, though, we can go down to Brigham Young. They use a bit of cellulose trapped by a tiny air current. Then lasers are used to light up the tiny particle. They're not ready for commercial production yet, and they're very tiny, and they're subject to airflow, like, you know, people breathing and hand gestures. But if you get enough of these together, you can create tiny moving images made essentially of little teeny lit particles. People are working on 3D moving holograms, but at the moment, the best we have is a 1990s rapper rapping with his now old friends. If we can figure this out though, we're gonna see R2D2 and Princess Leia type holograms, holodecks, Blade Runner 2049 giant people advertisements. You know that we're gonna see it. We all will have these. The producer asked me, how close are we to playing hollow chess when I was writing this episode? With augmented reality technology, we can do that now, but in terms of actual holograms, when we can move them around a board, decades, it would seem, but we are on our way. The question you have to ask yourself is, if one day we can make holograms that are so good that we can't tell the difference between them and real life, could someone have already done this with the whole universe? So we all saw the Matrix, right? If you didn't, go back and watch it. It's totally worth it. It's almost 20 years old, but it's still really, really good. The question that the movie poses, are we living in a simulation? That's a real question. Do we live in one, and how would we know? Scientists are working on that now. Putting it another way, you and I, we're, we're 3D, right? Time, that would be the fourth dimension, 4D. But like a hologram, what if? the fabric of space-time existed on something else. The little eagle on your credit card, it's printed onto something. What if the universe is printed onto something too? It might seem silly to even ask, but there are a lot of papers in the world of physics on this, the world of astronomy on this, way more than one. It's called the holographic principle. And the reason we have it is because of quantum gravity, black holes, and string theory. And I can't explain all three of those things right now, but suffice it to say, they're very important to this theory. Science American writer and science journalist J.R. Minkle puts it like this. Once you go into a black hole, everything you are is destroyed. And the black hole gets a little bit larger, right? It makes sense. You get sucked into the black hole, or really you fall into the black hole, you spaghettify, you get smushed into the middle, and the black hole gets bigger. Makes sense. The thing is, that actually defies the second law of thermodynamics. Because over time, the universe is supposed to become more disordered, more chaotic, more entropic. If I remove all of the complications of you, or of a planet, or a star, and turn it into a very simple black hole, I've made the universe less entropic, which is against the second law of thermodynamics. So with this, we can use holograms to explain why it's important. So, astronomers and physicists and smarter people than me think, the black holes might not be destroying the information. They're just encoding it, just like a hologram. So how does this affect you and me? One, we're not in a black hole. I mean, I don't think we are. I wouldn't even know how to know. This is exactly what we were saying earlier, though. If information in a black hole is encoded in two dimensions, 
then what if it was just two-dimensional already? If true, the 3D universe, all of the information around us, could be encoded into 2D, and we're just used to seeing it that way. We're used to looking at the universe and seeing a hologram, and it's really two-dimensional. We just think it's 3D, like a 3D film projected onto the fabric of the universe or onto the screen at the movie theater, right? If we've only ever seen that, how would we know the difference? No one's saying it's not real, by the way. It's real to us, but we're sort of like last action heroing it over here, right? Is that, that's too obscure. We're like space jamming it over here. Bugs Bunny, he thought it was real in his universe and Michael Jordan's universe was just as real. We're not saying that the cartoon isn't real to the person living in the cartoon. Gabor's invention of the hologram inspired scientists to use math to try and figure out if we do live inside of a hologram. It'd be like the cartoon characters trying to understand how ink and paper work, right? And math is helping us understand that it might be true. And if we are really a projection, to find out, to see exactly how, we just need to get closer to the screen. But the pixels that make up the image of the universe on the screen, they could be detectable. Some scientists designed an experiment called the holometer to try and spot the pixels in our real universe. Lasers reflect through some mirrors to a detector, and they're looking for the jitter of space itself. The thing is, if these pixels exist, they are 10 trillion trillion times smaller than an atom. They're at what's called the Planck scale. And they started the experiment in 2013, and in 2017, they got a result. And I'll tell you more about it when we come back. Seeker Plus is supported by another podcast you might enjoy, IRL by Mozilla. It used to be that what happened on the internet stayed on the internet, right? But these days, online life is real life. On IRL, host Veronica Belmont shares real stories of life online and real talk about the ups and downs of having technology all around us. From fake news to facial recognition, online dating, data privacy, IRL questions our relationship to technology and helps you make sense of the way technology is changing your life. IRL is produced by the nonprofit Mozilla, the company that makes Firefox. Mozilla puts people over profit and takes your relationship with technology and your online safety seriously. IRL is an entertaining look at the good, the bad, the trends, and the impacts of the new modern world on us as humans. And if you're looking for another great podcast to add to your list, which hopefully you are, check out IRL. Subscribe to IRL on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so where were we? Uh, holography of our universe and ourselves and also your mind. That's true. So, in 2017, they got their result and we are all living in a hologram. You're welcome. No, you don't have to panic. It's fine. It's totally fine. We're also not living in a hologram. It depends on who you ask. Scientists are still debating it. It's, it's a big deal. This whole universe hologram discussion is mainly in the realm of mathematics at the moment. It's a way of seeing the universe. Remember, again, that holograms encode information that's more complex than the thing that they are printed on, right? So if we could somehow get to the edge of the universe, then the screen it would be projected on would be right there in front of us. And mathematically, that screen is simpler than the universe itself that it's containing. That makes the math that explains quantum gravity, black holes, and string theory, which I don't have time to explain right now, but they're integral to the hologram principle, easier to explain. 
it's easier to explain quantum gravity, black holes, and string theory if the holographic principle is true. It requires less math, and the math actually works. We don't see the hologram, but math makes us treat the universe as if there is one. Let me editorialize here before we wrap up and explain why a holographic universe might matter. Isaac Newton realized that gravity was a thing. He used math to explain planetary motion, stars, but it wasn't precise enough to explain the more edgy things like black holes. So then Einstein shows up and realizes space-time was a thing and used math to better explain black holes, also planetary motion, and stars, giant things. He wasn't precise enough, though, to explain everything like the really small stuff, like quantum mechanics. So someday, someone, maybe you, will figure out how to use math to explain quantum mechanics and the tiny things and how they work with the giant things and the planetary motion and wrap this whole thing up into a nice little bow. Humans are just adding decimal places, adding precision to the ends of their equations. They're getting better at explaining everything. And this theory popped into a scientist's head in the 1990s because a guy in the 19th century wanted to take a better picture with color of fruit baskets and trees. Science is the best. I love that. Holograms capture our imagination. They are the ultimate trick because they capture more than their sum, more than what they are. They do contain multitudes. And that's where I'm going to end. I'm going to do that. Go ahead and put that on your wall. Thanks so much for hanging out with us here on Secret Plus today. Just a reminder, I'm Trace. You can find me all over the internet. Just look for at Trace Dominguez. You can also watch more Seeker videos at youtube.com seeker. This episode was written by Trace Dominguez, produced by Lauren Ellis, and edited by Alex Estevez. It was recorded by Matt Pinion. Thanks again for listening to Seeker Plus. We'll be releasing and rebroadcasting updated versions of our episodes on this channel, so we will be seeing you around. Stay tuned for an upcoming series next week. And until then, I'm Trace. Thanks for listening to Seeker Plus.